Mike McClure has just released his 10th solo album with his band entitled Looking Up. Mike got his start in Stillwater, Oklahoma at the Notorious Farm, where he was a founding member of the band The Great Divide, and he produced many of the bands on the Oklahoma Red Dirt music scene, including favorites Cross Canadian Ragweed, Turnpike Troubadours, and others. His song, I'd Rather Have Nothing, was recorded by Garth Brooks and released on The Lost Sessions and has sold over 2 million copies. He joins us today on Backstory Song to talk about those experiences and his songs from his new album, Looking Up. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and we are here to help songwriters get found and discovered and heard. I have today with me Mike McClure of the Mike McClure Band and formerly with the Great Divide Band. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So, Mike, tell me, when did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs? Well, when I was 10 years old in 1981, my family, we went to see Honeysuckle Rose, a Willie Nelson movie, and I just I just fell in love with it. So much so that the only thing I wanted for Christmas was the Honeysuckle Rose album. My aunt got it for me, Cheryl Lawson, thank you. And I just completely fell in love with Willie Nelson and the idea of being a, a traveling musician and writing your own songs, it just... Really, I have that that movie to blame for wanting to get in and get in and try. And so Willie was a big influence there. So when I was ten, I wanted my own guitar. My dad had a guitar, and he played. You know, he had a handful of chords, and he sang some old Merle Haggard songs and old Chad Mitchell trio stuff around the house. And so I wanted my own, and I wanted a gut string like Willie's. And so my dad took me to a flea market in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Guy asking thirty dollars for this is a Rico R E C C O. I think was a, the name of it, but you could shoot arrows off of the strings, you know, high action. And so, Dad bought that for me, and I started taking some guitar lessons and learning chords and learning how to play. And my dad and I sat down and tried to write a song together. I think the first thing we wrote was about a cowboy, probably because I'd been really getting into Willie Nelson and all that kind of stuff. I think Willie was probably inspiration for a lot of songwriters. Do you remember what that song was called? Something about a bull named Buster, you know. <laughs> Something about getting thrown off and then going back again. That's the last time we ever tried to write a song, <laughs> a song together. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's all I can remember. But that's what started it, you know. And I'm thankful my dad had a guitar around where I could, you know, after seeing that movie, you know how kids imitate things and I just grabbed it, and luckily it was there, and, and just the, the right combination. You grew up in this Oklahoma music scene. I guess it's called the Red Dirt music scene, and you know your work is very, very guitar-based. And I must say, I love your guitar work and, and what you do in the songs, especially the ones that we're going to talk about on the show today. Tell me about that Oklahoma scene where the Great Divide and the Mike McClure Band grew up. Well, when I was going to high school, I graduated in 1989, so that was 
you know, what was popular and mainstream at the time was bands like Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, more of the metal or the hair metal, rather. That was going on, and I was real big into that. And then Kurt Cobain and Nirvana came along and kind of stomp danced that. And then it became, you know, music shifted towards grunge. But a large group of people that grunge was like, oh, that's a little too heavy. And at the time, it was a little too heavy for me. And I heard Garth Brooks singing Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old. I was working in a lumber yard, sweeping up the floor, and I heard that, and I thought, man, that sounds like stuff I grew up on when I was younger. And so I started getting into that. Garth Brooks and Clint Black around that time, Hal Ketchum, they were all putting out really great country records. And so I swung from rock and roll, you know, a little more to country at the time. And then I went to Stillwater to go to college. And that's, of course, where Garth Brooks went to college and famously played there at Willie's Saloon before going out to Nashville. And and so I, I wound up there. And through that, I met some older guys. And they were in a music scene called Red Dirt. You know, in Oklahoma, our dirt's red as Mars in a lot of the places. And so that's what they called their music. And I formed the Great Divide with some cowboys from around there. They were old rodeo guys, and they needed the guitar player. And I just started being confident enough to say I'm a songwriter, you know, and long way from the the tough bull riding days of when I was 10. But I started, you know, really getting into it and thinking, well, I've got these songs, and I'll give them a go. So we formed the Great Divide in 92, and about that time, I was hanging out at a place called The Farm, and it was this old farmhouse out west of town. There was uh, a guy named Tom Skinner that would come through there all the time. There was a handful of musicians, the Red Dirt Rangers. It was just a place for artists. If they were passing through, traveling musicians, they'd stop and stay at the farm. And there was always people picking, and it was the first taste of bohemian reality for me. You know, I came from a small town conservative town in Oklahoma and here was a little bit different scene and and I just ate it up you know it was a place to sit I just got through reading Jack Kerouac's on the road and so it was like something right out of that novel bohemian reality I never heard of that That's I, like, I never have either I think that just come tumbling out there sounds beautiful actually just sitting there listening to a bunch of pickers and singers and yeah it was great you know there were there were different kind of artists you know there was uh painters and poets and Everybody just hanging out in the yard, and it was just a just a magical time. And I've read a lot of books about music, and it seems like those places, kind of vortexes, tend to pop up, whether it be, you know, Laurel Canyon way back in the day. And I felt really blessed to be able to be a part of that. And, and not only those locals were really good, you know, Garth Brooks came out of that area. I really looked up to him. When he hit, it's kind of hard if you weren't – I don't think younger people understand what a – what a big impact he had on the world. It was pretty amazing. But the main thing was for me was to get out of a town where there wasn't many people that were playing instruments and writing songs into a town where a bunch of people were. And it came your turn around the campfire to play a song. And man, all of a sudden it needed to be a good song. You know, I played a few crappy ones. And then afterwards I just like, oh my God, those aren't stacking up. And it was my first place to be able to do that.
So one of the first songs we want to talk about on the show is um, one that was recorded by Cross Canadian Ragweed uh, called Fightin' For. Yeah, this song, I wrote most of it. Cody helped me finish it up in the studio, but a little bit before that. So Great Divide started in 92, and then I met Cody right around that time, 93, and he started Cross Canadian Ragweed in 94. So when it came time for him to want to do a record with this band, he came to me because he knew I'd recorded a couple records with Lloyd Maines, who's a great, well-renowned steel player and, and producer of stuff like Jerry Jeff Walker. And anyway, so I got tied in with that. So I knew a little bit about putting records together. And so I started being the producer for Cross Canadian Ragweed, and we kind of grew up together. This was off of an 05 record that we did down in Austin at Cedar Creek. The interesting thing about this time period for me was a guy named Tony Brown signed Cross Canadian Ragweed to Universal South Records. And he was the guy who used to work for MCA. He was president of MCA Records who signed Steve Earle, Lyle Lovett. A lot of stuff I really, really liked and was super influential. And when Steve Earle made his Copperhead Road record, Tony Brown took him to a place in uh, Memphis, Ardent Studios, and he worked with a guy named Joe Hardy. And so when it came time for us to do this garage record with Ragweed, Tony Brown suggested I hook up with Joe Hardy. And so we got to talking, and that was the first album that Joe mixed for me that I produced. And after that, we went on to produce my solo records together, and he mixed all the other, all the other records I did. But we can get more into that later. This was my first Top 40 song as a writer, and Ragweed recorded it. It's got a pretty rock sound because I played on the rhythm. His rhythm guitar player was having a baby at the time, so I played on the rhythm track. And those records I'd learned from learning the song Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. You know, there's some Randy Rhodes style of chords, and they're just kind of odd, and they're more of a rock chord. And so I used those, and the song turned out really cool, and... Cody decided that's the first one they wanted for the single, and the record label got behind it. Hung one in the old top 40. Starts with a guy who's been drinking and <laughs> is a fabulous disaster and uh, is in a fight with his girlfriend, I guess, or, or an argument, let's just say, right? Yeah, and I've been sober for a little over a year now, and there's a lot of those time periods that were pretty alcohol-infused, I guess would be a nice way to say it. But yeah, that was just one of many. I have a whole bunch of songs from that era that's somebody's drunk, somebody's in a fight, because that was me. You know, Not proud of it, but you know that's where I was at the time. And I've always tried to write what I'm going through. So, And I took that fabulous disaster line because Cross Canadian Ragweed got really big around this time. They'd come back to Oklahoma to play, and it would just be a madhouse. And they wanted to play this bar called the Wormy Dog that they own. So they just named the band the Fabulous Disasters. You know, not many people knew that that was them. And they would go in and play kind of a semi-private party. So I nicked that line from them and stuck it in there. The other line I like in this song is, Sometimes I feel like a broken stone rolling down your hill. Don't know how a broken stone actually rolls. Not worth a damn. <laughs> yeah later i started singing like a broken stone rolling up your hill would be even harder and was this inspired by a woman that you remember 
Yeah. Um, I was married for 21 years up until about two years ago. It was just a mess from the start, really. And towards the end, it started getting, you know, we weren't the right people for each other. And we made a decision when we were younger that didn't really pan out over time. And and so the, it's it's dealing with that and being in the middle of that situation. And at the time, not really having the tools to know how to get out of that. The only tool I had was really trying to write a song about it because I knew if I could get it out of my head and on the paper and out there, then it would give it a place to live other than inside of my head. So I usually ask my songwriters on the show about their love songs and how their girlfriend or wife reacted to them playing that song for them the first time. How did your girlfriend or wife react when you played this song for her the first time, uh, that that would have been under the, uh, you know, oh, those were Cody's idea. <laughs> <laughs> Blame it on your co-writer, huh? Absolutely, that's what they're there for. You know? That's funny. She must have known you weren't getting along all the time. So yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a common theme in 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 some of my songs that would tend to crop up and. All the more sign that it's something I should have dealt with a long time ago. But that's something I've learned as I've gotten older, you know, instead of pouring alcohol on top of those things or it's getting down and rooting them out. You know, I think of all of the time I, I could have had when I was wasting that time with with alcohol or whatever. And instead of getting down to it, you know, I got down to it in the song, but I really didn't solve anything. I just kind of painted the picture of it and just let it sit there, you know, without the resolution. To blues and cheap amphetamines Their feet up on his dashboard Like a burned out Betty Page But she might have been something If she was half her age But together they were something And they burned down every bar Heading down to Okie City In a slightly stolen car What was left was decent people That didn't like their kind when the car pulled in the driveway, they were staring through the blinds. Yeah, the preacher in the kitchen, eating apple pie. Mama's in the bedroom, Lord, she couldn't help but cry. Daddy looked so natural, just like he went to sleep. Yeah, the preacher looked through Jimmy as he prayed his soul to keep. Coming home, coming home, ain't nothing like your family make you feel that alone. You're always his favorite, now you're So another song you wrote in this era is The Funeral, which you co-wrote with Evan Felker of Turnpike Troubadours. I love this as a story song. Yeah, and I don't write a whole lot of story songs. I have a handful of them, and this one was one. I think sometimes it's easier when you're co-writing to write a story song as you make up this story together and flush the characters out, which is what we did. And Evan is a great songwriter. When we wrote this song, it was their second album. 
they had recorded an album called Bozier City. Somebody sent me, it might have been Evan, sent me a recording of Bozier City, and I, I thought it was a cover because it was so good. <laughs> I thought, man, this sounds like a classic song. That's a great song when it sounds like a cover out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, it really did. And I don't know if he took that as the compliment I meant it to be. <laughs> so they got a hold of me, their band, and wanted to record. Well, actually, a kid named John Fulbright, who's a great Oki musician, he was playing keyboards for me, and he traveled with me for about three years. And, and I say kid, he's a grown man now, but at the time he was a kid and young and he was in Turnpike for a little while in the inception, and then he encouraged him to come to my house to record my studio, The Boo Hatch, which is here in Oklahoma. And I just started really learning how to engineer myself. I'd been a producer before. I'd come in the room and, you know, work with the band, putting the songs together and putting the album together, and, and someone else would engineer for me. And so through working with Joe Hardy over the years, he just taught me hands-on how to how to do it. So Turnpike was the first band that came in the studio into my studio. I had like a, a little Motu <laughs> two channel recorder and that's how we started. Some days they paid me in change. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> actual coins. Yeah. Actual coinage. Yeah. We're the whole lot now in the pandemic. Little did I know, but uh, yeah, they, uh, they showed up and they were really green and young and didn't quite have all their songs finished for that. And Evan and I were sitting around one night after everybody left and he said, man, I got this story. You know, I, I want it to be about this, uh, this guy. And he had the first few lines, which was stage right in Jimmy counterfeit James Dean pocket full of Delta blues and cheap amphetamines. And I was like, Oh, that's great. That's a great start. And so we just got to talking about who this character would be. And I always wanted to do some sort of prodigal son returns and nobody cares <laughs> instead of killing the fatted calf for the prodigal. You know, he comes home and the only reason he's come home is because of this funeral for his dad. The dad was the only one that really, really cared about the guy and the family. And, you know, it's a it's a really hard look at that. So this guy comes home and, and the mom asks him, you know, towards the end, why does it take a funeral to bring you back to town? That was uh, that was fun writing with him. And then uh, Turnpike, you know, they recorded it there. And then I recorded it on my album called Onion. And I did a, you know, more of a rock and roll version of it. And theirs was a little slower. We actually tried to do it together one time at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa. <laughs> our versions are so different from each other. It was really kind of a train wreck. I kept trying to guess his version. He kept trying to guess mine. They're in the same key though, right? Uh, God, I don't even, I don't even remember if it was. <laughs> I mean, that was the problem. I think it was part of the problem. Yeah. He kicked it off in a different key. And I'm going, Oh, so let me transpose real quick and try to remember. I, I do really like that song. Evan was big into reading John Steinbeck at the time. And, he got me into reading Steinbeck, just the way he paints a picture, really very beautifully descriptive. So this is a song about a, a guy named Jimmy who you know, left home, comes back as the prodigal son for his father's funeral, and really there's nothing home for him. There's no reason for him to come home other than his dad's funeral. And 
Yeah, and then there is kind of an ulterior motive. There's his dad's thirty eight, which is uh, hidden in the trunk of this car, and Jimmy knows about it. And soon his mom goes to sleep, and he's going to go get it. And, you know, he thinks in his mind that he's the rightful owner of that gun, no matter what a will or something says. So there's kind of that part of it. Jimmy's a little bit of a, I don't know, an outlier. <laughs> I had to look up who Betty Page was. I sort of knew. You know, everybody knows James Dean, but Betty Page. Yeah, but that was, that was one of Evans' lines. It's uh, with her feet up on the dashboard like a burned out Betty Page. Yeah, Betty Page being the old pinup model from I don't know, early 50s, maybe. I'm not super sure what the time period was. But yeah, there's sometimes live I'll throw out with her feet up on the dashboard like a burned out Jimmy Page, which is a different image. <laughs> yeah, completely different lady. <laughs> Honestly, that album that it appeared on Turnpike is called Diamonds and Gasoline, their album. And I, I'm i super proud of that one. One, the fact that was the first one that I did here at my house, you know, of saying, okay, I have a studio now. This is what I'm going to try to do for a while. And it turned out really great. I did that one. And then the next one I did was Damn Quails Down the Hatch. And they're another great Oki band. Yeah, you're at the heart of this whole oaky red dirt scene it's pretty amazing some of the people you've worked with there it's a, quite a groundswell of music and it's kind of a roots rock country sound it's real fusion sort of like oklahoma's in the middle of america you know yeah i think so I, I think a lot of the people that wind up in america are some of the there's just some characters you know we were talking before we started rolling just about songwriters being characters and studying characters you know to put into their songs and and i just think how a lot of people wound up in oklahoma you know after the dust bowl you know my family was here during that and they stayed instead of going out to california and the people that stayed are just a, a hard scrabble people they're characters and they'll take nothing and make a little something out of it i think that comes across in the music and the people it is the center of america you know we're kind of the crossroads of I-35 and I-40. And there's just all kinds of folks jumping off here, and, and we're not lack for characters for sure. What is it that you love about Oklahoma, Mike? You know, I really love where I'm at. I'm in southeastern Oklahoma, and there's the Arbuckle Mountains. It's nowhere near the beauty of Utah up there as far as that. But it's a lot of the trees that I grew up around as a kid. My folks had 10 acres, thankful enough to grow up on south of Tecumseh, Oklahoma, which is kind of in the center. And, you know, full of trees and a big creek that ran through. And I grew up playing outside and making up games in my head and entertaining myself. And then moving down here to Ada, where I'm at now, we've also got the little mountain range. And there's a place called Platte National Park. It's just really, really pretty with you know, natural springs that pop up and cold springs. And it's just a really nice area. There's really good folks around here. There there are. I know everybody has their good folks, but we do too.
This part of nature is in both the title of your next band, The Great Divide, and one of the songs that you recorded with them that you wrote called Out in the Fields. Uh, That's on my solo record. Sorry, the first album you did record after leaving The Great Divide. Sorry. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I did leave, other than the normal artistic differences everybody cites when they leave a band. I remember kind of whining about the Great Divide breaking up at one point. I was opening for Ray Wally Hubbard, who's a great songwriter. And I was kind of whining about that. And he goes, hey, man, even the Beatles broke up. Like, yeah, well, that's a good point. And I moved on. But um, in 98, we signed to Atlantic Records out of Nashville. And we did two albums, 98 and 99. We did Breaking the Storm and uh, Revolutions with Atlantic and after that, Atlantic was kind of going downhill. Well, Nashville as a whole, the bigger companies were shutting down. And we got in on the end of the glory days. So we left Atlantic and went to Broken Bow. They were in Nashville. and I really felt like the band had wanted to do an album in Nashville. And I was okay with that. And I thought it was a really good record. And I sat in on meetings with this manager that the Great Divide guys wanted. And I wasn't necessarily for the idea shifted from making an album to making 10 possible singles. And I just didn't like that at all. Cause I'm, and still am a fan of an album and putting the whole album on and letting it take you for a ride. And I feel like that was getting lost to where that is something that we really tried to do with the earlier great divide things. Just that mentality shift. I just couldn't really, I couldn't really align myself with. It just felt like time for me to go try to do something else because in a way I felt like I was in a band where I was writing the songs, singing the songs, playing the guitar. I was getting outvoted with what to do with those things. And, you know, that was definitely my perception at the time, whether that's reality or not. So this first album, Everything Upside Down, was the first one that I did with the band outside of The Great Divide. I'd have to wait a year and a half to do an album. And so I I just had all these songs all built up because I was writing all the time. I I still do. And so when it came time to do that album, I came out and I put out a 19-song album. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I was just dying to get these songs out there, you know, especially when you're younger and you don't have a whole lot of stuff out there and you're just like, oh, man, if the world could hear this song or this one, you know, I'd get in a different tax bracket. (laughs) (laughs) So Out in the Fields is from your first solo effort in the Mike McClure band. And I love the guitar work on this. And I especially like how you go from a intro with a very light guitar and then you crank it up and crank it down and crank it up. You know, what's funny is I'd been listening to Nirvana about that time, which was the very band that kind of drove me into the arms of country again. (laughs) 
But later in my life, I, I really got into them. You know, that soft, loud, soft, loud thing. I really liked it. Yeah, they're famous for that. They would do that on every song before they would record it and decide which way they liked it better. Yeah, I just love the dynamics of that. It just really punches you in the face when it's time. That was a song about out in the fields, almost gone. I got to keep on keeping on. And I was just talking about getting out of that band. And, you know, I equate it to being down on the floor while they're drawing knives on me. It wasn't that bad, but. And that was certainly the feeling of the thing at the time of, of I felt like typical artists being oppressed type thing, you know. I just wanted to be able to say what I wanted to say and how and not worry that there's a fiddle on this. And if I want to fiddle on it, then, you know, I want to put it on there for a different reason, not to try to get radio play or, you know, I wanted to make the art and then find the place to push the art. I like the way you break it down to just the bass drum and snare at the end with like the audience hand clapping. Yeah, that's one of those big Randy Owens from Alabama overhead claps. <laughs> right, right. My brother's five years older than me. I grew up hearing some of the older rock and roll all the time at the house. And Neil Young, I just always really liked how he had these little melodies with his guitar, like for intros. And so I borrowed some from Neil Young in that aspect on this tune. But this album, I wanted to put together a, a really killer rock and roll band. And I, I got a guitar player named Rodney Pyatt out of Texas. He's just, he does a lot of some of the other guitars that are on this record. And he's really great. He actually was, used to play for Selena. You remember her, the uh -huh. Spanish gal that got shot? He played for her for a while and Rick Trevino and some other people. But when we got together, he got a chance to get some of his rock and roll licks out, too, from, you know, being in the bands where, you know, that 80s kind of stuff really didn't fly with a lot of people, but us old hardcore holdouts still loved it. We just went for it. Just said, all right, let's make this as rock as we can. There's On that album especially, you know, there's a song called Wild Child that's fictional. Look at Elvis riding around in a car and blacking out. <laughs> Yeah, there's just some really wild guitar stuff on there, and Rodney brought a lot of that to it. And I got a chance to play some more guitar as well and flush out an album with guitars instead of uh, Phil Steele. Yeah, a lot of your songs have such incredible guitar work, but they have these great classic chord progressions, but the guitar fills, in my mind, really stand out, and you're like, they grab you. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm really a big fan of that you know, not to just play something as fast as you can. I really like hook type uh, guitar playing when there's like a, a singable solo, you know, to where one of my f absolute favorite guitar players, Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And just how he puts those parts in there, not just, you know, okay, here's some space to fill, play something flashy or, or this or that, but something that really fits the song, adds to the song, lifts it up. I've always been a fan of that, so that's what I was trying for. Well, I think you got it on Out in the Field. So it's a really great rock song, if you ask me. But who did? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy likes that morphine. Daddy likes amphetamines too Daddy likes anything Make him feel like he wants to 
Instead of feeling like he has to But he'll feel like he needs to For you Baby likes that white noise Baby likes the highway when it hums Baby likes the static Bleeding in on the radio station Makes it sound far away You know it feels far away Mama wanna know why Daddy had to go and blow another holiday So now you got some new stuff coming out that we want to talk about. The first one we want to cover is a song called Holiday Blown. Right. Yeah, this song, I started talking about myself in the first verse. You know, I, I've had some, some dealings with other chemicals as well. And and it's easy to do when you're in this line of work. And, and then I thought, oh, I don't want to be too honest here at the time. All right. And so in the second verse, I started bringing in my mom's dad, my grandpa, his name was Charles Stapp. He was a tank mechanic in World War II on the march to Berlin. When he came back home from that, you know, my mom said he was just, he just changed and, and he stayed drunk all the time. And he'd go to work in a garage and drink all day and then come home and pass out. You know, eventually he died from alcohol at the age of 41 on the couch and this is right before Christmas, and my mom was 16 years old. I've tried to wrap my head around that, and, you know, there's a, a certain sense of going, well, man, why'd you do that to your kids? And then on the other hand, I sit and think, well, you know, I never went to Berlin and uh, had to try to fix a tank while people were firing at me. You know, PTSD wasn't something that was talked about back then. People just came home. From the war and they tried to deal with it the best way that they could and unfortunately at that time it was a bottle and i did the same thing in my life you know i'm thankful for being sober now and getting some clarity and actually making some great changes in my life that affect my own children so i don't go down that same route but that song is really trying to look at addiction with a little bit of empathy because i, I need it myself and and i've thought about it a lot with with that situation with my grandpa, you know, all I have is photographs and looking at him and, and my mom as a youngster and trying to imagine what that'd be like at 16 and, you know, imagine what that Christmas was like. That's where Holiday Blown came in is mama want to know why daddy had to go and blow another holiday. You know, the why was from bringing a nightmare home from overseas. You know, that's uh, something that I've really had to go through and examine in my own life. Like, what's going to keep me from going down this same route where someday I'm laying dead? You know, and my kids have to figure out how to get through life without a dad. That should have snapped me to it earlier, you know, but it just didn't. It just took me some time to grow up, finally figure out that, well, hey, man, I, I can do something about this. I can do it right now, so... Well, we're glad you did, Mike. We're glad you did. Well, thanks. Glad to have you here. We're glad that you're still making music, great music. This first verse is very 
kind of hardcore with morphine and amphetamines. And I get kind of what you're saying there. I was trying to understand was the second verse where you go, baby likes white noise, baby likes the highway when it hums, baby likes static bleeding in on the radio station, makes it sound far away, makes it feel far away. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird one, isn't it? <laughs> It's different. I mean, it's not about the drugs or the alcohol there. No, you know what? Uh, it's one of those, I, I get in this stream of consciousness thing when I'm writing on a good day, you know, when things are going good, I'm I'm not analyzing what I'm saying. They just come out. Later, I can go back and kind of pick apart and go, oh, it seems to me to be the subconscious talking. And if I can let the subconscious talk, it can, man, sometimes it really makes for, for great art. Sometimes it'll use abstract images and stuff. And looking back, you know, I know my mother, she got me addicted to white noise. She had a thing called a sleep mate. This little machine you turn on, it sounds like a fan and you go to sleep to it. I started doing that as I got older and I was just picturing her liking white noise, you know, and why. Some reason there's something, and I don't know if it's to everybody, but to a lot of people, like a background white noise, like a fan or something comforting comforting to it because I think it gives the brain something to focus on other than picking problems apart. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It seems to be that way for me to where I can be sitting there and my mind's just racing and I'll put on some sort of recording of a train going down a track and I'm I nod right out or a highway humming. Where I grew up in Tecumseh, you could hear the highway from our house. You know, it's in the distance. So it wasn't like a real noisy, annoying one. It's kind of romantic. Yeah. And mostly here at night when everything's quiet, right? Yeah. And I'd have my bedroom window open and I could hear the semis, you know, going down. It was a decent sized little two lane highway. You didn't hear it all the time. but And that just kind of was in my subconscious too. In a sense, when you're younger, that wanting to get out and see the world, you know, that was the way to it out on the highway. You know, that image of a radio station kind of being a little staticky and coming back in. And that's kind of the way I pictured, you know, some of my mom's life with that. It's like, uh, you know, you didn't really want to tune that dial exactly on it because it was too painful. You know, I think that there's a certain aspect of that. So this is a song to your mother, to your children, to your family. Yeah. Yeah, and my grandpa, you know, I never got to know him and just try to somehow find some peace and, and some love with the whole situation instead of just, it, it was a tragedy, really, and it's just trying to make some sense of that and with a little bit of compassion to where I, I, I'm not holding it over his memory or anything like that, and, I, and that's important to me. I think that resonates somehow in the soul. Sorry. 
Other songs on your new album. What's the new album called, by the way? Oh, Looking Up. L- Looking Up. And you released it in September, right? Uh-huh. September 25th. One of the songs on it is called Here I Am. Another amazing guitar work song, which is your signature, I think. Well, thanks, man. I started out as a guitar player. I wanted to be Jimmy Page or Keith Richards and just over there playing cool guitar while some other guy pranced around and shook his hair around but i never really wanted to be a singer it just happened as i became a songwriter you know i just needed to okay these are my own words i should say on myself and be able to be okay with however good i think that is you know but this song this here i am this is all about the relationship i'm in now her name's chrislyn lawrence and she used to be my booking agent back in 2005. She worked for a little company down in San Marcos that booked my band. And, and we were always friends and really, really hit it off, really liked each other and were honest friends. And when I was going through my divorce, I happened to run into her. She was, you know, out of a relationship that had been a long one and hadn't been a good one. And we got together and she really, really brought a lot of love to me and and taught me how to turn that love inside and, and start loving myself, you know, as opposed to. Now she just gave me some tools, you know. She drug me to a yoga class in Austin, and <laughs> I'd never been. And thought, okay, what what am I going to do? This hillbilly from Oklahoma, <laughs> downward dog is what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> So she got me into that, and I've done that for about a year and a half now. Just, you know, every day get on the mat and stretch and meditate and just a lot of calming stuff. And she brought that aspect to my life because it was just chaos, man, really. Just if I hadn't run into her by the time I got a divorce, it would have just been a disastrous train wreck. So I'm super thankful for that and, you know, just being able to, to pull out a lot of these problems into the light, you know, that's a that's a big theme that runs throughout the the album is is how much I kept in the dark, you know, what I, what I kept hidden as far as addictions or what have you and feelings. And she's really given me a safe place to bring these feelings up and get them out into the light. They're not nearly as scary and they're not nearly as numbed up the way I was doing it and that can be fixed and you can have some growth I think that with being in a band you really don't push yourself sometimes to grow emotionally because you show up to a bar you load your gear in have a couple cocktails people show up they want you to drink they expect you to kind of be the life of the party and you know I lived that for a long time it just it's just there there wasn't any growth involved in it I could have kept doing that for the rest of my life and it worked out okay, but I never would have grown. And now I'm experiencing life at a lot higher frequency, if that makes any sense. 
One of the things I love about this song, Here I Am, is the harmonies at the end, which is not on every one of your songs. So tell me about how you laid that down. Yeah, that's that's Chrislyn, my, my partner, singing with oh, me. Oh, get out. So you brought her in the bridge at the <laughs> yeah. end. Yeah, this is real, man. Yeah, she's a great singer and a writer. And Her and I co-wrote another song on here called Little Bit of Love. Man, this whole song was about our relationship and me coming out of a darker spot into some light and her pulling me up. And, you know, then I wrote the bridge for this thing and it just screamed for another vocal. And and who better than her to jump on there with me? And it gives it a different lift because she's not in the other parts of the song. Here's this other voice coming out that lifts it up. And then at the very end, I get to take it out with a solo on there. You know, it's just, man, a lot of feeling that, has been accumulating over the past two years, got to be exercised and put down on this record. So here's a love song, and you write it for your new girlfriend. And uh, how did she react when you played it for the first time? She always plays it really cool. You mean even if she doesn't like it, she's going to tell you she likes no, it? Is that no. what super cool means? <laughs> she'll tell you the truth? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, she'll tell me the truth. Definitely, like, I was in here writing... This I write a newsletter for for people that sign up on my well website, and, and she'd kind of been on me to do it, and I wasn't really in the mood. And I sit down and I I knock something out, and she goes, "Are you, are you done?" <laughs> and then I then I knew, nope, I guess I'm not done. No, she holds my feet to the fire, and uh, she's been the the biggest cheerleader I've ever had as far as. Like, hell yeah, these are good. Let's get these out there. And she's really great at organizing and help get the Kickstarter program together and campaign, sorry. You know, raised enough money to hire independent promotion and press vinyl. And I'm just super excited about that. I haven't done that in years, probably since the late 90s. So to actually have a team pushing the record and and getting it up in the charts, it's pretty pretty exciting for me, especially at 50. questions I ask all the songwriters or most of the songwriters on my show is if you could pick a song or songs and any voice or band to sing one of your songs, what song and voice would you choose? 
Well, I, I got that actually came true for me with Garth Brooks. I'd written a song called I'd Rather Have Nothing, and I recorded it with The Great Divide. That was back in 94. And in 96, one of the guys in the band, Scott Lester, he got a hold of Garth on the phone and said, hey, we've got this band, and we got questions on how to do it. And so Garth sent out a tour bus one night at midnight in Stillwater and picked our whole band up. And we went out to Nashville and spent a couple of days with him just hanging out and playing guitars, playing basketball. It was really mind-blowing. You know, this was 96, and Garth was at the height of his powers, and I couldn't believe my luck. And then in 96, I played him that song, and he goes, man, play that again, and played it a few more times. And he said a little later, he goes, you care if I cut this song? <laughs> what do you say to that question? <laughs> Hell yeah. So I started spending that money a thousand ways in my mind. And, and then about a year later after that, I got a call on my answer machine when I got home in Stillwater and it was Garth. And he said, hey, man, I recorded that song and my producer really didn't think it was right for this record. And I'd like to hold on to it, but feel free to pitch it around and stuff. And so I was just deflated. And then about right around 2005, I got a call from Garth's lawyers in Nashville and had some paperwork for me to sign. He was releasing a, a box set that included an album called The Lost Sessions, and he had put that song on there. So I finally got that Garth cut. You know, uh, I'd rather have nothing. That's yeah. I had to wait about 10 years for that, but that finally happened. And man, just just hearing his voice doing my word. Well, another cool thing I'd like to say about Garth is he changed the chorus and rewrote it and, and made it better. And I said, well, let's let's redo the, the writing split on here where I split it with you. And he goes, no, just keep your name on it. You'll make a lot more money. Oh, that was nice of him. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, honestly, back then at the time, I was like, man, I, I'd really like to have my name next to Garth's on a co-write, you know, I'd be just as a writer, you know, something, some feather in your cap. But really looking back, he he made me a lot of extra money. And, you know, I, I definitely needed that at the time. So that was super cool. And hearing somebody that, you know, I think back to sweeping that broom around the lumberyard and hearing much too young and kind of set me on that course. And then to wind up having him singing one of my songs from right around that era, I, that was a really cool thing. But yeah, I've ideas all day long about other people. I've got this uh, song I wrote called Outlaw's Prayer. And this story, it's about uh, it's about this kind of Billy the Kid type characters escaping the law, heading to Mexico. But the twist of it is he gets shot. And a preacher finds him and drags him to safety and patches him up and buries his guns. And he told the federales that he died. So he has this chance at rebirth. And that's the idea of the song. I'd really like Willie Nelson to do it. Because back in 2000, Great Divide, we opened for Willie at Sturgis in South Dakota at the Hog Rally. And we got to go on Willie's bus afterwards and got to talk and have a puff with the man. and. I was telling him about this song, and I said, yeah, it kind of ties into, like, the Red-Headed Stranger, you know, because he was the preacher in the Red-Headed Stranger. And I said, I picture, you know, this preacher being the guy, you know, the Red-Headed Stranger preacher being the guy to save this guy who's gone escaping the law. And then he goes, well, play it for me. 
I said, well, man, I didn't bring my guitar on here. And he hollered at his sister, Bobby, and she brought Trigger down the hallway. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, handed it to me. I couldn't believe it, man. I, because that that was the guitar that made me, you know. It's kind of like round trip in your whole life story, right? And you're 10 years old, you wanted to play something like Trigger with the gut strings, and now you're getting to do it. Yeah, and there it was. In his bus after smoking with Willie. <laughs> this is like the whole thing. Yeah, I think I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, I remember trying to tune it, you know, I was sitting there with a little out of tune and I hit it and I started turning one of those pegs and it started creak, 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 you know, like, oh God, I'm going to break it. And so I said, man, when you tune in, I'm nervous. And he laughed and tuned it. And then I played him out lost prayer. He said, oh, that's really cool. And then, you know, I haven't seen him since. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get Willie to record that. Maybe our fans can get this song in front of Willie. Well, Mike McClure from the Mike McClure Band, we love having you on the show. Come back again when you drop your next solo album. The current one's called Looking Up, your 10th solo album out there with the Mike McClure Band, and we wish you the best. Thank you for coming on Backstory Song. And I have to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt in the booth. DJ Wyatt. Making these things sound so great. Thank you. And you can listen to DJ Wyatt Schmidt's music out there on the internet. And I got to thank uh, my social media director, MC Owens, for all your help and getting our listeners. Please share this episode with your friends on your social media. We're here to get these songwriters heard and get their songs listened to so they can make a living. Mike, you got anything to wrap us up with or add? Yeah, I just wanted to tell people to check out MikeMcClureBand.com. That's my web page, and that's M-C-C-L-U-R-E. And all kinds of stuff on there. I do Zoom concerts now that I can't travel, and also do lyric sheets of people's favorite songs. I handwrite lyrics and, and all kinds of musical information over there as well. 